The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey, coaches. John Mitchell here. Hey, I hope you're doing well. So a few weeks ago, we heard an interview with University of Houston basketball coach Kelvin Sampson, and he said something really interesting. The lesson he wished he had learned earlier in his life was not caring what other people think. He was only able to do that when he got into his 50s, but he saw what a difference it would have made if he had had that wisdom to embrace that in his 30s and 40s. Just think about that. Don't you think we all struggle with being overly concerned with what other people think? Especially our athletes struggle with that because of their age. And it's for that reason I want to give you an interview this week with one of the top sports psychologists in the country, Michael Gervais. He does an interview where the topic is, appropriately enough, not being concerned about what other people think and how actually to do it. In the interview, listen for how you have to have a purpose-driven identity rather than a performance-based identity in order to not care what other people think. Also tune in to when he says in the interview, sports is 15 years ahead of business in terms of unlocking human potential. Also listen for where being concerned with what other people think actually holds us back from our potential and why that's the case. And here's the essence of what you'll learn. Life is an inside job. What you think is what matters. Sure, you want the input from the outside world, but at the end of the day, what other people think just doesn't matter. Your standards should be your internal standards, like doing your best and being accountable to that, rather than other people's standards based on performance. So with that said, let's get rolling and listen to this fabulous interview with Michael Gervais. And remember, as a coach here at the University of Texas, you're living the dream. Welcome to Game Changers with Molly Fletcher, where we take you behind the scenes with peak performers to learn what makes them tick and discover how you can apply their lessons to your life. I'm your host, Molly Fletcher. Today's guest, Dr. Michael Gervais, is one of the world's top high-performance psychologists and leading experts on the relationship between the mind 
and human performance. He has spent his career helping the best of the best when they need to achieve the extraordinary. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, MVPs from every major sport, and Fortune 100 CEOs. He is the founder of Finding Mastery, a high-performance psychology consulting agency that helps individuals and innovative companies solve the most dynamic human performance challenges through mindset training. Dr. Gervais is also the host of the Finding Mastery podcast and co-creator of the Performance Science Institute at USC. His new book, The First Rule of Mastery, is a guide to overcoming what may be the single greatest constrictor of human performance, our fear of people's opinions. In our conversation today, we talk about the science of peak performance, how to stop worrying about what people think of you and live life on your own terms. Here we go. This is my conversation with Dr. Michael Gervais. So, Michael, you know, we both had a front row seat to high performance for so long at the elite level. And, and you know, everyone has talent. And so at some level it becomes, what do you do with the margins, right? And so much of that is mental. I'm, I'm curious, at what point did you start focusing your work in that space, the mental space in particular, as it relates to high-pressure environments, which I know you work with, people in, in those circumstances deeply. So I'd love to know. Well, the origin story is um, it started when I was younger. And um, you'll, you'll, I think you'll get a chuckle out of this is because I, I was a good little athlete. It was surfing was my, surf, or was my sport of choice. And I could do it in free surfing when there was, quote unquote, no pressure from the beach. It was only the connection with the wave that was required. But as soon as people showed up on the beach, on competition day for judges and those friends and family, I was a disaster, Molly. <laughs> like, I was this, you know, this 15-year-old kid that I could do the thing, but not on the day I needed to do it to get a score. Mm -hmm. And I just, it was up in my head, and I was, I'll never forget it. It was perfect conditions. It was about a foot overhead, local break. I was a 15-year-old kid surfing against a 26-year-old, let's say. In my mind, that's how old he was. And he right. paddles by me, and he says, Gervais, um, I, I surf with you all the time. I know what you can do. You got to just stop worrying about all the things that could go wrong. I sat there for a moment and I thought, my God, how does he know what's in my head? Because that's all I was, con I wasn't thinking about the next wave and how I was going to drop in and turn and da, da, da. None of the productive type of thoughts. It was all fear-based and it was like a, a worry and it was very unproductive. It was a very cloudy feeling. And I think, I think you and your, probably your whole community would recognize that anxiousness that can come. I didn't know at the time that that was a lightning bolt moment for me, but it was. And it set me down this path because at that time I said, wait, hold on. It's not my body. It's not my technical skills. Like it is my mind. What mm -hmm. is this thing? And how do I, how do I let that happen? So I just started reading and having conversations with people that were able to compete really well. And they too, this is now a 15 year old kid at it asking. Yeah, that's what you know, I, I was about ready to go. Wait, you're 15, man. Yeah, but it was so bad. Like, yeah. okay. I don't think age matters when, when, when it's bad and 
okay, so this leads to another point, but it was so bad for me that I had to sort it out or I had to leave. I had to not do that sport because it mm -hmm. sucked thinking yeah. that like, knowing that you can do it, but not when people are watching, not when there is a score or some sort of artificial consequence. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so as a 15 year old, I was asking and they're, and they're like, yeah, they're looking at me like, yeah, mental part of the game is important. I go, well, what do you do? I say, well, you know, I don't know, like when I get too nervous, I breathe and, you know, like uh, I, do, I, I see myself being good later. And I'm like, oh, these are great. Come to find out it was just the beginnings of the scientific inquiry and the scientific discipline called sports psychology. So traditional psychology is the study of dysfunction, disorder, um, the kind of those hard parts of the human experience. And that is actually, I am a classically trained psychologist now. So, but at that time, I wasn't that I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in like, how do the best do it? And all I had access to was the best in my local area. And then I found once I tripped my way into college, will be nice and say that, um, that I, there was this sub-discipline of the psychology of excellence. And I said, I'm at home. That's what I need to figure out. And so um, long journey, 30 plus years from that point, um, I'm now 50, that psychology of excellence to me just means like this ability to be at home with yourself, wherever you are, independent of the conditions independent of the requirements of the moment. You have a sense of being at home with yourself. I didn't realize that so many people wanted that too. And, um, and so there, therein lies what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 20 some years is helping the best in the world do their thing a little bit better by opening the aperture of their potential by strengthening and training their mind. What a blessing. Well, you've helped so many. You've helped corporations, elite athletes, it's got to be rewarding and, and such meaningful work. What What is it about it that makes it so meaningful? Okay. So I never wanted to work with professional athletes. That was never a goal of mine. But when I started to get in a position to apply the science that I was learning, again, master's degree in sports science and then a PhD in psychology with a specialization in sport, when I started to get in the position to be able to actually help people, I just wanted to work with people that were, I don't know, I wasn't very healthy as a 20, 30 year old, like as obsessed as I was about unlocking. And I didn't care what they did, but come to find out the kind of radically obsessed to get better are those that have fundamentally committed their life efforts to getting better. And those are athletes and artists, entrepreneurs sometimes, but not so much. And so I just found myself like those were the people that I, I resonated with. And, and then I'm a bit of a junkie for like when the unlock happens, I feel like I get a moment like, yeah, yeah. Oh my, I can't wait to see what you do with this. And so that, that, that was the origins. And then I'll, I'll tell you a story if I can. I love it. I love stories. This is just last weekend. We had the 10 year reunion for the Super Bowl winning team, the Seattle Seahawks. We won the Super Bowl in 2013. And so we just had the 10 year reunion. And I was with the team for nine seasons. And um, so when you're doing work with people and they're in the throes of the amphitheater, you can tell when it's honest work and it's good work and it's working. You know, you can tell. 
but you don't get a feeling of what it means to them until later. So this was the moment later. Molly, like, it was so overwhelming. I had to leave. The, there was like, it was three days. It was the first party. I had to leave the party early. It was so overwhelming because there was nearly a lineup where um, wives were coming up like, oh, I know you. And my eyes are like, what do you mean? It's like, he talks about you all the time. Like, I don't know if he's told you, but like the things you guys worked on and how like you, he got free. Like the reason we have our lifestyles because of the third contract and he, he squarely says, you know, it's based on the work you guys did. And so our, our family legacy is different and, and he didn't fall into depression, which is where he was heading or he, he, he didn't let anxiety run a show. So this idea of like, that takes time sometimes to really understand it, I think is cool. I'm just in the throes of that right now. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. How it's rewarding. A, oh. To, to, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how rewarding. Because you've changed, to your point, their lives and the lives of their families. And it sounds like it was a, a line of people saying, hey, man, thank you. And I, I did not know it. On the, way, on the way to the hotel, so I live in Los Angeles, and so I flew up to Seattle, for the reunion and on the way to the hotel, I called my wife and I said, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, what am I going back to celebrate this for? You know, I'm wrestling so many alligators in my life. Like it was a bit of a luxury to, to kind of pop out of. And, and so she just, you know, she's a wise woman. And she said, just soak it up, see what happens. So I'm really glad that I paused for a bit to, um, to reflect and reconnect. It was it was wonderful. I hope I hope everyone gets those types of moments in their yeah, life. Yeah, they're important. I mean, they're important. And I think when you're a curious person, when you're driven, when you are, are interested in high performance, you don't really spend a lot of time in the rearview mirror, right? And that's probably why that was weird for you, because you probably don't look 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 back much. So good for you for doing that. That's cool. Yeah, thank you. What do high performers fundamentally, what do they do differently? in your experience? Okay, that's a great question. Is, and there's a cost to the answer I'm about to give you. And there's a, um, a great upside if you can do this right. But what most of them, if not all of them do, I say most because there's freaks in the industry of, you know, like there's folks that roll out of bed, half drunk, eat three slices of pizza, pop some jelly beans in their stomach, and then go run a 40-yard dash in the fastest time you've seen, jump 42 inches. Like, there are freaks out there. So I don't want to be Pollyannish about what I'm about to say. But for the majority, they fundamentally organize their life to get better. So what happens in big business, what happens in entrepreneurship, what happens in family systems often is there's not that fundamental commitment. So let, let me explain a little bit further. Athletes every day have organized the way that they structure their days with the support of coaching. And re- remind you, the coaching that is happening in sport is there's there's internal coaching that's happening all the time. So you're listening to your body as a feedback mechanism. Your peers are watching. The people that knows what that know what's up, they're watching, and they'll have something to say if you're not bringing the standard or if you're just not getting it. And then you've got coaches who are responsible for helping build you and cut you. <laughs> and cut you from the team if it's not good enough. And, and the design of every day is to get right to the messy edge where you're not very good. 
So because the messy edge is where adaptation takes place. It's where honest growth takes place. And it's so difficult and so hard because when you're on the messy edge in a public environment, by definition, you're not good there. And so what we want to do so desperately, all of us, we want to be seen favorably by others. We'll get into that hopefully in a little bit yeah. because oh, it's absolutely. a, it's a, it is a FOMO. grounding. Yeah. FOPO is it. It is a grounding mechanism for us to be accepted by others. And what, what the greats do is they push way out to the messy edge. They recognize that they're not going to be good there, but that's where the, that's where the gold dust is. That's where the indicators of what could be are. That's where the information about what I need to get better at lies. It's not intellectual. It's psychological, it's physiological, it's emotional, and it, it needs to be at that messy edge to get that honest information. And so that's what they do. And most of us were exhausted because we're playing a different game. They're tired for a different reason. They're tired because of the expenditure that they have at that edge. They must require um, great recovery. And so they've got this daily practice of high stress, high recovery. And what most of us go through life is the different game is we're, we're spending most of our time to look good. Social impression is really important in the living room. It's really important in boardrooms and meeting rooms and hallways and certainly on social media and blah, blah, blah. So, but that is exhausting. That is a tiring way to go through life and we don't properly hit in a, any kind of sophisticated way, for the most of us, proper recovery. So we've got this low hum, high anxiety, high stress experience, and this, let's just call it really average, below average daily recovery, where, well, I mean, it's crazy making that we're even having a conversation about the importance of sleep still. <laughs> I know. And so... Like th there's nobody in your community that doesn't go, oh yeah, I know, seven to nine hours, I, I know. And then you say, what are you doing about it? And they go, oh, it's hard now. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it's hard for me too. I gotta, Molly, I gotta compete my ass off every day to, to try to get what's optimal for me is like 7.2 to 7.8 hours of sleep. If I get in that strike zone, I'm pretty good. And I gotta compete. I gotta, you know, I can tell you all the ways I, I work to get the proper sleep, but there's a gap between knowledge and, and doing it. And that's what makes the greats so good is they understand it. They get to the messy edge. They learn their pride is not as fragile as you think because they're willing to be vulnerable. They're willing to be coached publicly. They're, they're hungry for unlocking because they have something more important than looking good. So I'm hearing you say that at some level, when we get to the messy edge, we're invariably going to make mistakes because we're in this sort of place that's new, that's different, that's challenging, where we're being curious, where we're trying to get better. But yet we live in the world where, oh gosh, man, you messed up again, you messed up again, right? Like you're not supposed to do that because we live in this world. But at some level, it's about not worrying about the messy outside world because it inhibits our ability to get to the messy edge. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. So let me run a little experiment or share an experiment I, I do. So I'm in front of a, a room. If this is a switched on room of high performing athletes that really want to do something special, 
I, when I ask the question, I say, who here wants to be their best? Everyone raises their hand. Who wants to have a good life? Like where it's amazing, you've got flourishing and fulfillment and you're performing at your upper level and you know, you're really going for it, which means you're gonna have some scar tissues, you're gonna be in that vulnerable space, but like, you know that that's required. They all raise their hand. And I ask those same questions into, let's say an audience of 500,000 people in, in a more of a corporate setting. They all raise their hand too, okay? And it would be weird if some person in right. the community <laughs> didn't wait. Okay, now let's go back to the locker room for a minute. And they'll double click and I'll say, right, that means you gotta take risks, right? And they're all nodding their head. And I pause and I say, who wants to come up and see how their mind works under pressure in front of all of your peers? So what do you think the difference between the locker room and the corporate setting, you know, of, of 500 to 1,000, you know, top performers in business are? What do you think the difference is? Well, the, the, the athletes probably, I would bet 80, 90, 100% of the room raises their hand and you've got 10% of the room in a corporate environment that raises their hand. 10% was nice. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Exactly. You know, it's, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's right. Not, that's nice. It's three yeah. people in a thousand. Yeah. So when you ask the question, like, what's different about them? They, this is when I say fundamental, like I'm not mincing my words there. They fundamentally committed. So when the opportunity presents to be uncomfortable, to be vulnerable in something they care about, okay, they step into that high heat moment. Most of us haven't, we haven't done the deep work to know what the fundamental commitment is. So we we play like we are, but then given the moment, we reveal our real philosophy. We reveal our true first principle in life, which is to be accepted. And if I go up there and I lay a big egg and I start sweating and I, and I can't use my mind under pressure, what are they gonna think of me? Are they going to reject me? Am I gonna be kicked out? Am I gonna be thought less of? Oh God, don't do that. Don't take the opportunity to test myself because that could be disastrous. So most people's first principle is play it safe, play it small, be in the middle, be accepted, do not risk being kicked out of the tribe. That's So now on the other side, back to the athletes, they're like, look, I, I'm here to be my very best. That means I got to be exposed and I've got to get to that edge and maintain my strength and dignity when I'm at the edge and it's not all good because I've got a way I think about myself. And the way I think about myself is, no, I got to go for it. And I'm not going to be perfect. And if I'm trying to be perfect and I don't go for it, I'll never know. And this fast train of elite sport, it's happening. If I step off the train by playing it safe in this way, I don't know if I'll ever get back on. So I got to practice stepping in, stepping in, stepping in. So I'll, I'll leave the thought with this is that there's external noise and internal signal. And it's fundamental and foundational to gate out the noise. And the noise is all of the things that you cannot control, which is most of life. Let those things almost like be like spaghetti on a wall, just let it slide down. That's not your business. There's a little bit of residue because like some things are really important, <laughs> but like you can't control them. So putting yourself in a deleveraged position, trying to control what somebody might think of you you are now in a highly compromised, deleveraged, low power position. And it's exhausting because when you're doing all this micromanagement of looking good, the real cost is intimacy. The real cost is people see that you're faking it. They don't, they don't, that's not trustworthy. 
You know, like imagine if your spouse or partner or loved one, if I, if I thought my wife was always just presenting to be good and didn't allow herself to be herself, that's not a real relationship. And so nobody does it alone. This life that is riddled with incredible potential, your potential, my potential, like nobody does the extraordinary alone. We need each other. And if we're playing a game to look good and not be a great teammate, mm, we end up like being on a pretty weak little small boat by ourselves. Whereas like we need to be, you need at least two, three people in your life that are like, I see you, I get you, I got your back no matter what. And um, come on, let's go, let's go do this thing. I used to always tell my athletes and everyone in this world, to your point, I think needs people around them like that, that you just suggested, but also people that need nothing from you. And that's hard to do, as you know, with athletes to, to surround themselves with a few people that need nothing from them, but for them to be the best version of themselves. And what's so sad is so often it's it's very hard for them to find those people. And it was always important to me to play that role in their life because sadly, sometimes their family, their spouses don't play that role. Well, how about that, right, Molly? That sometimes um, the people that promote us staying small and kind of stuck sometimes are the ones closest to us because if we exponentially change and we want to move from one gender to the next, <laughs> you know, we want to go from a Honda to a Rolls. We want to go from this neighborhood to that neighborhood. We want to go from uh, this team to the all-star team. Like sometimes those folks, like they don't want us there because it'll make them feel bad. And look, I love my family. There are some family members that have a hard time with some of the other family members that are uh, kind ambitious, um, principle-based. So they're doing it, what I would say, kind of in the quote-unquote right way. But if there's a reflection that takes place to, to others that are, let's say, kind, but more scared, um, it's hard. It's really hard. And I was so looking forward to this conversation because in some respects, um, you and I both have, have had unique relationships with some of the best in the world, and we are not their friends. We are um, paid business partners or sometimes, you know, like, so it's different. And so we don't, it might feel that way to them, but it's not family. And it drives me crazy when people say, all right, here we're family. I, I, I might be offending you. I don't know. But no, like, no. yeah, it's not, you don't fire your family. You don't fire your mom. You might not want to be around somebody, you know, if they're stealing from you, <laughs> you know, or like, you know condescending to you, but like, you don't fire them. And in biz in sport and in business, there's an invisible handshake. And this is why I think this concept of being afraid of people's opinions is so pervasive because there's an invisible handshake and we don't talk about it. And that invisible handshake in business and sport is um, you're one of us as long as you perform, as long as you can do the tricks that I think are important. You can stay here as long as you're on time with your reports, as long as you're catching enough balls, you can stay here. But don't be confused. There'll be a moment when this will be too fast for you. You won't be able to keep up. And if we don't address that invisible handshake, it's a very slippery, 
dangerous path. And I'll tell you what that path looks like is in business, people start to hold on, they play it more safe, and they, they fall into that, they slide into the on-ramp of FOPO, fear of people's opinions, and they outsource am I okay to the micro-expressions of others. They worry excessively so. It, this, it's, FOPO is like this filter that, that influences your thoughts and your words and your actions to just not blow it in the eyes of others. But it costs you mightily, both on the energy system because it's so draining and the feeling of being true and honest with your own thoughts and words, with your own ideas. You know, I, I was so fortunate I got an advanced copy of your book, which I love. And, you know, you talk about FOPO being the greatest restrictor of human performance. You, you shared a little bit about how you gained clarity on that relative to getting to the edge in the FOPO piece. Is there more there as it relates to how you got clear on this? Yeah, so that lightning bolt moment when I was talking about from surfing was to just go down the path of, of psychology. And then, um, again, it was like a year later. A lot happened for me when I was 15 or 16. So I was just, it was like weeks into me getting my driver's license. And I saved up and I got this, you know, Mazda B2000 truck. And um, it was like, I don't know, a couple grand. And I was so happy. I, you know, I, I did all the odd jobs to, to save up for a truck. And I got my surfboard in the back. I'm driving down the street. And um, there's a car that's passing me, um, going a little bit faster than me in the same direction. And I recognize, I'm, in, I'm on high alert. I'm only <laughs> driving right. for a month, right? right and right, I can sure. feel the car and I sense the car driving you know, on my left-hand side. And I did this weirdest thing, Molly, is I grabbed the steering wheel and I leaned to look cool. And I thought to myself, I wonder what they're going to think of me in my new car. And I was 16 and then, and I looked over they weren't looking at me. And I thought, what am I doing? You know, I said, what am I doing? Why did I just play this stupid little game? And I didn't realize that that was like the beginnings of me noticing that I was doing that a lot. I was attending to wanting to look cool and good and like rather than be comfortably doing or deeply focused on the thing that mattered it could have been music on the radio or it could have right. been just what a good beginner driver should do is 10 and 2 mm -hmm. and just drive, you know. <laughs> right. But so I was right. more interested in, in in like what they were thinking. And so that was the the beginnings of me. And I was so embarrassed by it because there's such weakness to that. So I kept it quiet. I kept it private. Um, it was like this pent up anxiety that, that I experienced as a young person. And um, then when I started to spend time with elite athletes and coaches, you know, sport coaches, they had it too. And then I wrote an article about it two years ago and I, I submitted it to HBR and 12 months later, HBR called and said, Hey Mike, you were the number one downloaded article on HBR. Let's do a book. So I spent two years in the laboratory, like to take an article to a book. That's what the book is about is this, the first rule of mastery is to work from the inside out. And when you do that, you end up stopping this excessive worry about what they might be thinking of you. So we came up with that fun term, FOPO, for people's opinions. And tell me if like, if this resonates, like checking your phone so that you appear busy or in demand, 
You know, FOPO shows up when you're staying to work late because maybe your supervisor is still around or laughing at a joke you don't find funny or pretending that you know the lyrics to a song or a movie that everyone's talking about, but, you, you know, you've forgotten and you don't want to look old or, or out of the fray or staying in a job because, you know, others think it's prestigious. It's like the golden handcuffs or avoiding a reunion because you haven't achieved as much as some of your peers or what you were expected to do or pretending to drink at a party. You don't want to drink, but pretending to not be the oddball out or, you know, like hiding your age, you know, in, in an industry that prizes youth. Like those are all, can you relate to any of those? Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, for me, Mike, uh, the world thought I was crazy to step away from being a sports agent. I mean, I had a lot of success. I'd, you know, I had unbelievable relationships with my guys. I mean, all those things. But what I found was I really, really found power in sharing my stories and experiences with some of the best athletes in the world with business people. And it was helping them. And I think to your point earlier about how we as human beings need relationships, I think in part, and I've heard you talk about this, it's it's relationships that we can pour into. At some level, I think all of our purpose isn't about us. It's about how we can make others better, to your point about relationships. And I think I, I began to sort of unlock and realize, okay, I can go to my grave and have negotiated a billion dollars or $2 billion and made a lot of money for a lot of different guys. But is that the legacy I want to leave? Or could I leave a different legacy by pouring into lots and lots of people from stage on my other ways, books, et cetera? And people thought I was crazy. But the truth is, I wish I would have done it sooner because I followed my purpose, my core values, my philosophy, which I've heard you you talk about. But I share that because, yes, I completely can relate to it. Especially the little insidious one, like FOPO starts in your closet, you know, which is like, what am I going to wear? And then it's like, well, what will Johnny think of or what will Susie think when I walk into the room with this? And when those types of things are pervasive, it's just... It's just this energy suck. And um, so that's really what this book is about. There's a, there's a better way to do it. And um, Best in the World have showed me. And science, there's a, like, we're, everything I do is grounded in science. And so there's good science to back up the recommendations on how to free yourself from it. Where does FOPO, where does it stem from? Okay, so our ancestors gave us a gift. And part of that gift is that, you know, we have this brain that has figured out how to how to pass on the learnings to the next generation. And those learnings, in the most part, are to, are to optimize ourselves for survival. So we are highly skilled at scanning the world around us for the smallest of threats. And then, without even thinking about it, mobilizing our body to fight, to flee, to freeze, sometimes even submit, which in business that happens more than we think. And so, you know, our, our great, great, great grandparents figured out how to wrestle with saber-toothed tigers or wildebeests and you know, like they sorted out the dark ages, like we, we survived it, we're, we're here. And there's another thing that they sorted out, which is it was a near death sentence that if we were to be rejected from the tribe, if we we're ostracized for, ostracized for low performance or doing something unbecoming, that, you know, it was too much to be able to hunt and gather and forge and build a fire and build shelter and protect our children and potentially fight hostile humans or animals. That was a death sentence. So we needed to be part of the pack and the tribe. And part of the way that we stay tuned is through performing properly. 
So that's why many of us have this identity that is related around performance because our brain is running the show. It doesn't need to. That's an old mechanism. So if you think about the brain as the, sh- the tissue in your skull, and then you think about your mind as you know the, the programming that runs that tissue, it's oversimplified, I know. but I love it. That's Thank you for that. Yeah, the mind is the software, the brain is the hardware. I mean, it's... <laughs> The reason we're talking about psychology so much in the world right now is because people are saying, I want to upgrade my software. Like, I don't need to be run by this million-year-old, you know, programming of the brain. Like, there's a better way. That's why I think it's one of the great constrictors is because we're not talking about it enough and this need to be accepted and this, this scanning the world for even the slightest of rejection. You know, belonging is safety. And... Um, there's also some some downsides to only belonging. And that's really kind of what this thing is about. Hey there, it's Molly. I want to talk to you about something that can change your life in just 90 seconds. Have you ever been told that you're too loud, you're too shy, too passive, too thoughtful, too intense? Do you find that some parts of your job or your life or some relationships fill you with energy and others you dread? That's the thing about energy and energy management. It's not one size fits all. What I saw as a top sports agent for over 15 years is that the best of the best understand that managing their energy is the key to sustained success. Understanding what makes you tick is the first step. And that's why I've designed a new energy profile quiz to do just that. The best part, it's totally free and it takes just 90 seconds to complete. This quiz will help you master your innate energy patterns and decode how to be the most successful you that you can be. Don't wait. Go to mollyfletcher.com backslash energy dash profile. Take the free quiz and start the journey to mastering your energy, your unique energy. It's your superpower. And with my quiz, you'll be well on your way to harnessing it. That's mollyfletcher.com backslash energy dash profile. Now let's get back to the show. The consequences of FOPO are... Lots of things. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. I would imagine, obviously, one is which we don't reach our full potential because we spend so much time worrying about what other people think. What are the other consequences of living that way? We hold back some of our best ideas because we're fearful of how somebody might share them. So there's a or experience them. There's a cost in an organization to it. We call it biases, like. Um, You know, there's all these biases that we could go through and list, but the self-serving bias is the one that really drives everything. And so playing it safe as opposed to advancing the mission um, is one great cost. So it slows down innovation. It slows down adaptation. It slows down a sense of buoyancy and fun and engagement in the work settings. And I'll tell you a funny story here is that um, I spent about 10 years working Um, helping round out the high-performance program at Red Bull. And Red Bull made a fundamental commitment to help their athletes be the best they can be. And the Red Bull world is what you would imagine, like full Mm -hmm. energy. And those (laughs) people there are like having a lot of fun. And 
And then I bring some of those best practices into like, you know, multinational company that I'm spending time with. And they're like, we can't do that stuff. I go, wait, hold on a minute. You, you can create any culture you want. You're choosing to have one that has language like, like this, like continuous improvement. <laughs> Honesty. <laughs> you know, you're using that language where Red Bull is a, is a multinational organization, you know, billions of revenue. And, and they are using language like, don't take yourself so effing seriously. Have fun at the edge. Pick someone up. When they're when they're too tired, like they just got different ways that they use some of their language, and I'm I'm, I'm not exactly squaring up what Red Bull says for their values. Sure, but it's real. But you can put funk on anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just because you've got Wall Street looking at you, you do not need to use language that is as square and rigid as it comes. <laughs> so, so what ends up happening is we think that we're supposed to be a certain way, rather than working from the inside out and being authentically in any environment. So there's a cost to innovation and creativity and that buoyancy and fun in life. But what's underneath that as well is that it's just literally exhausting. It is right. exhausting to try to manage this thing. You know, the excessive scanning for approval and reading micro language and trying to interpret what they might mean or not mean and all picking up all the little micro expressions. And what does that silence mean? And did you notice that I didn't hear back? And am I being excluded? Why won't people pull me in? What's wrong <laughs> with our organization that, you know, like I'm not upstream on, oh, you know, like these are the things I hear inside of organizations. And um, we made a commitment at the Seattle Seahawks um, when, we're, when we made the Super Bowl run, which is um, we want to be as distraction free as we can so we can focus on what matters most, which is our relationships. Relationship with self, relationship with others. So we were we were not an organization grounded on winning. Matter of fact, we only talked about winning once. We talked about being developmentally minded, relationship-based and developmentally minded to become our very best together, period. That was our mission. And um, it's harder than it sounds. And when I share that, I shared that approach with um, Microsoft and the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, and he goes... This was like five weeks into his job. And he says, um, as a CEO, and he says, let's see if we can get some of that here. And so the mandate for our company is, is to scale best practices across 200,000 people at Microsoft to train their mind so they can be their very best to deeply support the purpose of Microsoft, which beautifully so is to help people achieve more across the planet. And, um, you know, obviously using their technology, which is cool, <laughs> you know, so there's such an unlock waiting and sport is about 15 years ahead of business when it comes to unlocking potential. 15 years. Wow. Yeah. About 15 years. Wow. I know. That's, that's interesting. Think about it this way is that you'll recognize this is that 15 years ago, we started to include at the main table, if you will, of sport or the head coach and assistant coach and position coaches strength and condition coaches were at that table. Now we've got um, the sports scientist that's at that table. And the sports scientist is essentially the person that is responsible for the internal capabilities for everyone in the organization to be their best. So no longer is a sports psychologist an external referral. No longer for the switched on teams are they a dark 
oddly lit room at the end of you know the hallway <laughs> right they're sitting at the main table now wow that's awesome because yep. the the big unlock is psychology in in elite sport so business isn't there yet they've got strategist and they've got um, finance and they've got um, hr and the science to build the capabilities from within uh, each person that's now in in organizations like Microsoft, they're saying we need that capability woven throughout, just like you guys were doing elite sport. There's so much research in your book. Was there anything that surprised you, Mike, you know, inside of that research? Was there anything relative to a topic that just popped out to you that you that took you off guard? Yeah, there's a research by um, Gilovich, Dr. Gilovich. And um, so if you wore the ugliest shirt that you can imagine, okay? Like if I gave you the ugliest shirt you can imagine, I said, I want you to walk into this room of 100 people, of your peers, and I just want you to sit down. And you know, you're gonna walk in from the front, so everyone's facing you. You walk in from the front and sit down, kind of somewhere in the middle of the room. And then I want you to come back out, okay? So you sit down for a little bit and you walk back out. And if I were to ask you how many people do you think noticed just how ugly this shirt was. What would you say is the percentage of people that would that you think would notice you? I know where you're going and I love it. Uh, I would say the predictor is higher than the actual. So most people that come out of, this is an experiment that, that was run. And the person that comes out of the room, instantly the researcher said, how many people notice this ugly Barry Manilow shirt? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Barry Manilow is not the, the, the cool kid <laughs> shirt, right? And so... Um, the people wearing the shirt, like yourself, said oh, at least half. So 50% was the number that keep that kept coming back. Then the researchers asked all the 100 people in the room, hey, somebody came in and, um, and was wearing a shirt that was ugly. How many of you noticed the ugly shirt? 25% noticed. So we double, we, we, we double the estimation of what we've, of people that are actually paying attention to us. And so when, you know, when your grandmother or grandfather said like, you know, honey, people are, they're not really thinking of you. <laughs> Come to find out, yeah. you know, according she to was research, right. <laughs> grandma was right. And so um, they're not, we're doubling that estimation. And so yes, 25%, you know, two and a half people out of 10 notice that you're wearing an ugly shirt. But nearly eight, eight out of 10 people don't even notice that you're wearing an ugly shirt. And you're, you're walking in beaming and kind of sweating and nervous and fidgety and like, God, I hope they don't think I'm, I'm looking a certain way and they're going to think less of me. They're not paying attention at all. That's called the spotlight effect. And I just love that research. Let me give you another one. Can I give you another one, Molly? Please. Okay. So there's this, there's this other research where they, they, took, um, they took two milkshakes. They brought a group of people together and they said, right, this milkshake is, it's labeled indulgent. And it's, you know, it's exactly what is on the label. It's, it's chocolate and banana. It's an indulgent shake. And people ate that. And then they measured their metabolism and they measured um, ghrelin. So it's a very specific uh, peptide. And what that does is, is, is impacts how hungry you feel. Okay. So they measured that on the indulgent milkshake. And then the same people, I think it was a couple of days later, they brought them in and said, okay, now we got a different shake. It was the same color. Come, come to find out it was the same exact shake, but it had a different label on it. And it said sensi shake, as in sensible shake. 
And he said, this one, this, this one's good for you. And so they drank it. They metabolized ghrelin. The, the metabolism of the person was fundamentally different. The shake was the same. Wow. There should be no reason, according to the research uh, controls, of why somebody would have a different experience in the way they metabolized it, but they did. Wow. And so just your mind impacts how you metabolize and, and work at the peptide level. That's, that's a mind blower. Totally. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So just when you walk into a room and you think, whatever you're thinking is dramatically and intimately affecting your physiology. So if you want to live a long, healthy, good life, you got to start thinking that way. If you want to live a life that is of high performance, you got to start thinking a certain way. That's so good. I'm so excited tonight. I can have a chocolate chip cookie and think it's a rice cake. And <laughs> I'm count. not sure. I'm not sure that that's exactly <laughs> the unlock here. That's so good. Oh God. What does identity? What does it have to do with all of this? We're obsessed with performance in our culture, certainly in the West, and um, when you're good at something, you get attention for it, and it feels good. It, it you know it feels good. When you're good at something at a young age, it's even more complicated because what we're supposed to do at ages 12 to, let's call it 22, 21 years old, according to developmental psychologists, it's marked by um, this phase of identity, building your identity, okay, between the ages of, of uh, 14 to 22, somewhere in that range. And if you get a lot of attention for how will you perform something like an athletic thing or artistry or being charismatic, whatever, that what ends up happening is because it feels good to get the external attention, because it feels good to do that thing, we start to foreclose all of our other potential identities and we collapse it on the way that we perform. And then we sub-collapse it on, I am an athlete. And then we collapse it one more time, even narrower to I am a surfer or I am a baseball player, okay? And when you start to niche down and narrow down your identity, what ends up happening is when you go on the mound or you go to paint a canvas or whatever it might be, and your entire identity is fused with the thing that you do, it becomes really hard to get free. Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting for me because with the athletes that I worked with, I mean, it was always so important to me to ensure they had clarity on life after sport. Because when that jersey comes off your back, when you don't make a million oh, bucks a yes. month, when all that changes, which it's going to end. And what's fascinating is even the most intelligent, realistic guys and gals out there, they don't really seem to comprehend the fact that this is not going to last forever. It's going to end. And so working toward building your identity away from that guy that throws a baseball 98 miles an hour down the middle, you've got to do that. And I think you've got to do it early. And your point about when kids are young and the praise that can happen early in their life can create that identity, that sense of reward at some level externally for that performance. Oh, that breaks my heart because it impacts them for life in really significant ways. You hinted on it. There's a better way. And it's to go from performance-based identity to purpose-driven. And so that's that's the arc. And my, my advisor in graduate school, I don't, I don't know if she ever published this research, but I, I knew it intimately from while she was conducting it, is that it was in the NBA. And she segmented, um, she offered NBA rookies 
the opportunity to um, invest in hobbies, you know, with their time, like things they might think that they might want to do later. So a rookie comes in and says, you know, I've always wanted to be a pilot, but, you know, I've never had the chance to do it. And then, so this was the research. So then she would set up, you know, um, a little internship or a little day out with a pilot or, you know, here's how you become, get a pilot license and we'll set up the off season, you know, steps for you to just begin. Okay. So it was like this idea of muse about later, and then we'll help you kind of invest in some of the, some time there when it's appropriate. And there was a group of folks that said, oh my God, this is amazing. And there's a group of folks that are like, why would I bother? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm here. I got, I'm all in now. I'm in the show. Did you miss the memo? Yeah. This yeah. is it. This is, okay. Then we measured, we, she, she measured um, how they performed and their experience while they were in the league, their psychological experience. The ones that invested in options for later ended up having a bit longer, not, I don't think it was significantly longer, but they played longer. More importantly, they played more freely while they're in the league. So the ones that chipped all in, like, I'm here, do you have a shoe deal for me? No? Okay, <laughs> not interested. Um, yeah. They reported when they were done, I was tight because that's all I had. So I, I was wound up during my time. So there's an art to like, I get when people say burn the bridges, burn the boats, go all in, no plan B. I think that's insane. No. I mean, why would we do that? Honestly, why, why would you do that? Because it's a forcing function for motivation. That's no different to me than a sport coach that says, you don't need water, suck it up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we know better. And, you know, we can, we can learn to use FOPO to unlock our potential, to make us better, to unlock the best version of ourselves over time. How? Get me inside of that a little bit. Starts with knowing your first principles. To be grounded, this is a full circle now. It starts with knowing your first principles. What are the, the words and the phrases and the ideas to guide your thoughts, words, and actions? So what are those first principles? You got to write those down, I think. And then be very clear that those are the ones that you want to be about. And if you look at the most influential, the most dynamic, the most alive people on the planet, they tend to be heads of religion. <laughs> Buddha, Confucius, you know, Muhammad, like uh, Lao Tzu, Mother Teresa in her right, you know, like they're either they're social leaders or religious leaders. And I'm not making any pitch here. I'm saying we know what they stood for. Gandhi, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. You know, I can go on and on. Like, we know what they stood for because they were about it. They were clear on their first principles. And then if we deconstruct it, they had great conviction, okay, from clarity to conviction. So that's part of psychology is no more, no more complicated than the study of yourself. Know yourself, okay? Like, invest and study. What are your tripwires that get in the way of you lining up your thoughts, words, and actions to those first principles? What gets in the way? What scares you? What, what twists you up? What, what distracts you? Know how to work with those tripwires so that you can be convicted. And that is where, so the space between clarity and conviction, the space between that is where mental skills training lives. And that's really what my life mission is about, is to help people train their minds so that they can 
be as cheesy as it sounds in my head every time I say it, you know, so they can be the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge, Jim Lair uh, was the first guy that kind of helped me understand the power of having a purpose statement. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. To me, it becomes this filter by which you, it changes the way you show up in relationships, conversations, moments, the decisions you make, what you say yes to, what you say no to. It's huge. So I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire and then we'll wrap. Sound good? Sounds good. What's your morning routine? Uh, four steps. And I can send this to your audience um, if they send I'd an email. I love it. Yeah. I've, I've got it like a nice little audio thing that, to walk you through it. Um, there's four steps. It's called the morning mindset routine. If you send an email to info at findingmastery.net and just put um, morning routine, I'll, I'll send it out to you. It is uh, four things. I take a breath. I get connected to uh, gratitude, I get connected to an intention, and then I put my feet on the ground and I just practice being in the present moment. I do those four things, it's 60 to 90 seconds, but there's a particular way to do each of those to bring that to life. But that's my morning routine. I love it. What do you do? What do you do, Mike, when you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed? I asked that question to Alex Anolt, um, who you know, was a free soloist of El Capitan, and he, he's classic. He goes, I just kind of piss myself. <laughs> Like I asked him when he's on the wall, when you're on the wall and you've run out of options, what do you do? He says, I just pissed myself. It's like, that's not what I do. But um, when when I'm feeling overwhelmed, like I go back to nature and it's like the most powerful grounding source for me. And um, so I do something to be outside, connected to the natural rhythm of the world. And the second thing that I do is um, reground myself with people I love. So the show's called Game Changer. So one last question, who or what is a game changer who inspires you and why? My mentor at a young age, Gary de Blasio, he's, um, he, he spent the time to see me as a, as you know now, a struggling 15, 16 year old kid. And he spent time to see this anxious, irritated, you know, punk kid. Um, and I felt seen and it was a game changer for me. And so it's foundationally one of the reasons I found value in psychology is because I know the grounding feeling when somebody just holds space and they see you and they're not judging and critiquing that is a game changer for me. Mm. And now you do it and your team for so many people. It's awesome. Mike, this was fun. Thank you, Molly. I really appreciate your spirit and including me um, in your community. So thank you. All right, here are a few of my favorite takeaways from my conversation with Michael. Number one, beware, FOPO, the fear of other people's opinions. FOPO. Often what's holding us back, and and chances are a piece of it, and maybe a big piece of it, is the fear of other people's opinions. In other words, choose to live your life on your terms. Number two, choose a purpose-driven identity. Most people fall into the trap of performance-based identity. Performance-based identity means we define ourselves by how well we do something relative to others, which often creates a fear of failure and perfectionism. A purpose-based identity comes from within and is bigger than you. Number three, work from the inside out. This is pretty self-explanatory, but what this means is get clear on your purpose. Put time and energy in understanding you. What drives you? What legacy do you want to leave? What are your deepest values? Spend time inside out. That's sustainable high performance. 
So coaches, Molly did a great job on the recap. So here's the action step. Three years ago, I met Michael Gervais at the Seattle Seahawks facility in Seattle. He explained to me in detail this concept of each athlete having a purpose-driven identity. It's articulated in approximately 50 to 75 words. And when he was working with the Seahawks, every player was required to do this. This was a huge factor in taking them to two Super Bowls. I'm telling you, it's powerful. So if you're interested in implementing this concept with regards to your whole team or specific athletes, just let me know. I can help you do that based on the training that Michael gave me personally. So in the meantime, hook them.